And now God comes and says this, verse 25. That night Yahweh said to him, Take the bull from your father's herd, as well as the second bull, one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's Baal altar and cut down the nearby Asherah pole. Then build an altar for Yahweh your God on top of the stronghold according to the proper pattern. Take the second bull and offer as a burnt sacrifice on the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did just as Yahweh had told him. He was too afraid of his father's family and the men of the city too to do it in broad daylight, so he waited until nighttime. Now the Baal altar, here is a picture of what Baal looks like. So you can see Baal in his one hand above his head is a thunder club. You beat the sky and it thunders. And the other hand is a lightning bolt. And you're like, well, that's not lightning I'm used to. If you turn it upside down, it actually looks more like lightning, real lightning, than our little jagged like thing that we draw. So the reality is he's a thunder god. So they would build an altar to him. It was a square altar with four like little horns, like on a Viking's helmet, which they actually never wore helmets like that. And they had the four horns on the four corners, and then they would have some kind of image like this of Baal. And then the Asherah pole is this. This is a teraphim. And the teraphim is a, an idol that's about like six inches to three feet tall. And the teraphim are the idols that Rachel stole from her um, father Laban. And the teraphim are these gods that you carve out of stone or wood and you keep them in your house and you believe the spirit of the gods actually indwelt the teraphim. You were actually praying to the gods. The gods were actually living in your house and the gods protected you as well as blessed you. Think of it as a teraphim like having a security system, winning the lottery and a 401k all wrapped up into one thing. Now this one is Asherah. Now this one's carved out of like stone, but they also had trees. So they would actually take trees or poles and have tall ones and carve them to look like this. And because Asherah was a very sexual fertility goddess, she's grabbing her bosom here. And not just a sexual way, though that was part of their worship, but also in a nurturing, providing milk for babies, fertility, life for the families and that kind of stuff. So there's this altar with an image of Baal there and then probably several trees standing up carved to look like this. And this is their Sunday morning worship, so to speak. So God commands them to go and tear down this altar, build a brand new altar to Yahweh, tear down the Asherah poles, cut them up, and use it as the wood on the new altar to sacrifice the bull to Yahweh right in the middle of his village. And that's God's command. So the first thing that now Gideon has found out whether this is truly Yahweh or not, God's got his own test for Gideon. And the test is, I want you to defeat the Midianites how? All by yourself. But here's the thing. Can Gideon represent Yahweh in delivering them from the enemy when Gideon has idolatry in his own land, his own neighborhood, his own backyard, his own family? God is going to test Gideon in one way, saying, first, if you're going to defeat an army, let's start small. Let's just go after an altar first. And second, you have to remove the idolatry in your own house before you can lead my house. If you're going to lead my people, then you have to remove the idolatry from your own life. And so the first thing that Gideon has to do is purify his own 
belief system, his own worship, his own neighborhood. Now, how does Gideon do it? At night, and the narrator specifically tells you because he's afraid. And how else does he do it? If he was supposed to defeat the Midianites all by himself, then he should at least be tearing down an altar by himself. Now, here's the thing with Gideon. Gideon failed. He failed in two ways. What two ways? We just said them. He didn't do it by himself exactly like God said, do it by yourself, and he's not doing it by himself, so he needs help because God's not enough just like what previous judge? Barak. Barak was said, go out and defeat the enemy, and he says, you're not enough, I want Deborah to go with me. God tells Gideon to defeat the enemy and tear down the altar, and Gideon says, you're not enough, I'm going to get some help. And not just help my servants. Because if I actually get friends to help me, then I might actually have to risk that they won't be. But servants have to obey me. So that's really guaranteed help. There's, there's no risk in being rejected when commanding servants to do it. And he does it at night because he's scared. Now, the big problem with this is, how in the world are you going to fight an enemy in daylight when you can't even tear down an altar in daylight in your own village? And the second thing he does is, well, yeah, he gets help. So there's no way he can do this. He fails miserably. He needs more than God, and he does it at night because he's scared. However, did Gideon show faith? Yes, because he did it. If there was no faith here, he would have never done anything. Gideon does demonstrate faith. He did obey God. He did step out in faith and trust that God would take care of him somehow. However, his faith was not at the caliber that God would have wanted it to be. Well, let's rephrase it this way. He got a D. <laughs> he didn't exactly fail, but God's like, yeah, oh my goodness, you're not ready for the exam. He does poorly, but he still showed faith. Now, here's the thing, though. God is not going to abandon him. His faith may not be what it should be, but God can use faith to do anything. And this is the point that the author of Hebrews is making. The point of Hebrews was not saying, Gideon, an incredible man of faith. The point was that by faith, Gideon did this, because the little faith that Gideon did demonstrate, God was able to do amazing things with that. And that's the point here. God wants this to be a, a, a lesson to you that this, this is not true faith. But at the same time, it is some faith, and God's still going to use it. And God's still going to use it. Now, he's hoping that nobody will know who did it. <laughs> Verse 28. When the men of the city got up the next morning, they saw Baal altar pulled down nearby the Asherah pole cut down, and the second bowl sacrificed on the newly built altar. They said to one another, Who did this? They investigated the matter thoroughly and concluded that Gideon, son of Joash, done it. In a small village where everybody knows everybody, it does not take long for them to figure it out. So his doing it night to completely failed. He should have just done it and trusted God. The men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son so that we may execute him. Now remember, just like in Israel, to do something against Yahweh was punishable by death. Other religions had that same law. He just tore down the altar of Baal, and he just destroyed an image of Baal in Arashra. 
And so they wanted to execute him. But Joash said to all nearby those who confronted him, Must you fight Baal's battles? Must you rescue him? Whoever takes up this case will die by morning. If he really is a god, let him fight his own battles. After all, it was his altar that was pulled down. That very day, Gideon's father named him Jeru Baal, meaning may Baal contend with him. He had said, let Baal fight with him, for it was his altar that was pulled down. Now what's interesting is the father kind of comes to the son's defense. Now in our culture we would say, well yeah, that's natural. A father should and most likely would. The problem is this is the ancient world. And even in God's law, God says if you go in into the, the, the tabernacle and you defile the altar of God, that is punishable by death. And God says it doesn't matter whether it's your son, your uncle, your brother, your dad, whatever, you are to kill them. If Gideon had defiled the altar of Yahweh, then Josh would have been responsible for killing him under the judgment of God. And that's true of every other religion. And if Joash is the one leading the religion of Baal, and, in the, and Baal is not a covenantal, compassionate, faithful, loving God. He is a God who is looking to destroy you any moment. And the only reason he even keeps you alive is because he wants you to feed him through the sacrifices. But if you've tore down the altar that you serve him food on, he has no problem killing you. And if you don't kill Gideon, then Baal will make the entire village suffer. There's no way that Joash would keep Gideon alive, even though it's his son. And remember, these religions also require you to sacrifice your firstborn son as a baby to the gods which means Joash has probably already sacrificed his first son to the gods already. So what's another one? So don't think of him as a great loving father who's defending his son. Then the question becomes, why is he doing this then? Perhaps he's wondering why his son, who's the weakest in the weakest clan, got the courage to do this and why nothing as bad is happening to him. And maybe Joash himself is beginning to wonder Wait a minute. How in the world is he still alive? Shouldn't Baal send a lightning bolt down and struck him? Now, I can't say exactly what he's thinking, but given human thoughts and history and way people act, it could be that he's beginning to doubt. And he defends. And we even see that when he says, well, you know what? Let's just let's use this as our own test. If Baal is really, truly God and truly all-powerful, then we should expect to see a lightning bolt come down and strike my son. And if that doesn't happen, then maybe we should rethink our God. And if it does, well, then you have your execution that you want. He is renamed Jeru Baal. And all this shows that the real fight is between Yahweh and Baal. The real point of the story is not whether the Midianites or Israel is stronger the real point of the story is what God is more valid. And Gideon's testament, here's the thing, every day that Gideon stays alive is another testimony to the fact that Baal is not real and Yahweh is. But if Gideon dies, it's a testimony to the reality of Baal. And so Gideon becomes a walking billboard testimony to the sovereignty of Yahweh in comparison to Baal. And that's what Jeru Baal is meant to communicate. Is that, and that's important to understand that Gideon's name now, his identity, and his life, and technically his walk, is now going to be a constant testimony to the sovereignty and the power of Yahweh. 
as superior to all their things. Yet here's what's interesting. Who was supposed to actually do this in the village? Stand up and t say all this. Gideon. Did, was Joash called by God? Did Joash see the, the, the goat burned up on the altar? Was Joash commanded to tear down the altar? Who was called to deliver Israel? Gideon. And yet Gideon's hiding behind his father. And it's his father who's never experienced Yahweh before who is standing up with greater courage and greater like testimony of who Yahweh is than Gideon is. This is what you're meant to do. Scratch your head. Okay, wait a minute. Gideon has shown faith. He's being obedient to God, but at the same time, like, my goodness, he's doing it at night. He's hiding. And then when he's finally found out, he has this shining moment to give a Joshua Moses-like speech, and he hides behind his father. And his father, who's never encountered Yahweh ever in his entire life, gives a much better theological discourse on who Yahweh is than the Gideon who just experienced him and spoke to him and saw his power. And you realize he's not there. He's not there. This is not a shining man of faith. This is a man who has demonstrated some faith, but is pathetic. Is pathetic. Verse 33. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people from the east assembled, and they crossed the Jordan River. So they're all down here in the south and the east, and they crossed the Jordan to begin another invasion. This is their year seven or year eight invasion. They crossed the Jordan River and camped in the Jezreel Valley, and Yahweh's spirit took control of Gideon. Remember, what does it mean for the Spirit of God to come upon you in power? Victory. Yeah, victory. Yahweh is giving you the supernatural strength to fulfill His will. And God's will for Gideon is what? To fight the Midianites. Kill them all. All by himself. So God has said, my will for your life right now is defeat the Midianites all by yourself. Now all of a sudden the Spirit of Yahweh comes rushing upon him in power and he's going to feel this energizing force. And the question is, what does Gideon do? And it says, he blew a trumpet summoning the Abrazites to follow him and he sent messengers throughout Manasseh and summoned them to follow him as well. And he also sent messengers through Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. What did he do? He raised an army. He disobeyed the command of God. Is he going into action? Yes. This is better than sitting on the couch watching Netflix and eating bonbons. But at the same time, he's acting like Barak again, where he's saying, your spirit of Yahweh is not enough for me. I need flawed humans. That that's powerful. The Holy Spirit of God's power is not enough for me to trust you and act. I need humans who constantly shown how they fail all the time in order to guarantee my victory. And entire armies from several tribes is better than one spirit of God. Now, he may not be thinking this totally consciously, but we know that even though we're not consciously saying that, when we go to other things other than God, that's basically what we're saying. You're not enough. He fails by hesitating and calling up an army. And not only that, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him now, which means God wants him to act now. 
If God wanted him to act next week, the Spirit of the Lord would have come next week. Here's the thing. He's sending messengers out to Zebulon and Natalia and Asher. It's going to take at least three or four days for the messengers to get there. You can only do about 25 miles in a day, and this is 50, 30, 75, 100 miles from these places. So it's going to take several days for the messengers to get there. Then it's probably going to take a couple of days for them to get out of there. It's not like the minute you get a message, you jump out of your bed and you go off to war. You have to get supplies gathered and weapons sharpened. And you have to gather people together because they are all scattered on farms. So they all have to rally together in their tribes. And then they have to prepare and they have to move out. And then it's several days for them to show up to even find out why they're even here. We're talking about more than a week has gone by after the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he hasn't done anything. He's hesitating. How many of you guys remember Super Mario Brothers? <laughs> you may have not played it because that wasn't your generation, but you've at least watched your children and grandchildren play it. Play it. Super Mario Brothers was like the, is by far to this day one of the most famous popular video games ever. And it's these two plumbers that go out and like basically try to rescue a princess because that's real life. Um, and so, so it's a 2D side view thing, and they just run, and they can jump up and hit blocks and stomp on, like, little turtles and mushrooms and all kinds of stuff. And there's this one thing in the video game where you hit this block, and this flashing star comes out. And when the flashing star hits you, the music, like, gears up and goes, it gets even faster, and you become invincible. And you just, and you only got like a minute or two, not even a minute, of this invincibility. And you just run as fast as you can and plow and kill everything you can because nothing can harm you except for falling in a hole. <laughs> and everybody knows that the minute you get that star, every kid knew you just start running because you only have so many seconds and you need to not waste this thing. That's like the spirit of Yahweh coming upon you. Gideon has been guaranteed invincibility. God told him, go out and defeat the Midianites as one man, which means he is going to win. And as long as he's fighting Midianites, he is invincible. He cannot die. It's a promise from God. The power of God comes upon him, and he's supposed to rush out there and just plow through everybody. Now, most likely, like everybody else before him, he's going to show up and God's going to do it all for him. But the reality is he's supposed to still just run out. In some cases, like Samson, Samson did literally physically plow through them. But everybody knows that if you got that star and you just kind of stood still and do nothing, everybody watching in that game would be like, stupid, you're so stupid, why are you wasting this thing? Now, these are high school kids, that's why they call you stupid. And that's what Gideon has done. He's just got an invincibility star, and he sits down his rear end and blows a trumpet and waits for people to show up. That's not the worst of it. It gets even worse. Verse 36, Gideon said to God, he said to who? Elohim. He's not using Yahweh anymore. If you really intend to use me to deliver Israel as you promise, then give me a sign as proof. Look, I am putting out a wool fleece on the threshing floor. And if there is dew only on the fleece and the ground around it is dry, then I will be sure that you will use me to deliver the Israelites as you promise. Now, is this good or bad? Why? He is testing to see if God will actually do it if he's actually capable 
So the first one was good because he says, I want to know if this is really God. But the minute that God sends a lightning bolt down in an altar and burns up a goat, and you now realize that every single story that you've ever been told about Yahweh is true, and all the stories of the Torah start flooding into your mind again, you know without a doubt that God is capable of doing everything he's telling you to do because you, he already said he knew all the stories, and now he just saw in living color in his own eyes, with his own eyes in front of him, and now he goes back to Elohim generic and says, but are you actually capable of doing it? Will you really use me? So not only did he waste the Holy Spirit and say, this is not enough for me, I need an army, and he's sitting around for a week or two waiting for them to show up, but then he has the audacity to test God and say, can you actually really do it? Prove it. Which is a direct violation of Deuteronomy chapter 6 because this is exactly what the devil says to Jesus and says, Okay, if God will really take care of you and protect you, prove it. Throw yourself off. And Jesus, quoting Deuteronomy, says, You will not put the Lord your God to the test. I don't need proof from Yahweh because I have an entire Bible and my own personal experience to back that up. Gideon fails miserably. Right now, the only good thing that he's done is just torn down an altar. And he didn't even do that with an A+. And then ever since then, he's just been failing and failing and failing. I was wondering if it's self-doubt in himself. Oh, yeah. Because that's what we do. Yes, it's doubt everywhere. I, I know you can do that, but I, you know, I've got the way. i got it all figured out. But even then, there's nothing wrong with self-doubt if you're 100% confident in what Yahweh can do. It's okay for me to say, I can't do this, because the reality is, I can't. I can't do the Christian life on my own. I can't go out and witness to people on my own. It's, it's impossible to really be effective. And so, yeah, self-doubt is actually what leads you to total faith in God. I mean, when you have self-doubt, and I don't mean in a depressing, beat-yourself-up, masochistic kind of way, but just in a realistic, I cannot build the kingdom of God through my own efforts way, when you have that combined with your knowledge and experience with Yahweh, that's what produces faith. And then faith can accomplish anything. The problem is when you take your self-doubt and go into the woe is me, and then you vicariously transfer that to Yahweh as well. And that's what Gideon is doing. And I've heard a lot of people say, hey, let's go put out our wool fleece test for God to see him like no 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 that's so wrong that's so I've heard a lot of really great men and women say stuff like that and it's like you Deuteronomy Deuteronomy please read Deuteronomy this is wrong and so he puts it out now why now Gideon is not just like making something up you're like this is a weird test this is a weird test the test is in the morning if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry then I'll know you're God and like, well, why? Well, remember, Gideon is mostly about flocks and sheep. Who is the God that he's supposed to have destroyed and go against? Baal. And the dew is also connected to Baal. In fact, Baal had a daughter by the name of Telia. And if you translate Telia into the English, her name is Dewey. <laughs> Not from Donald Dunk's little nephews. But... <laughs> The morning dew. The morning dew. This is actually, even though it's a completely disobedient lack of faith test, it's a very culturally relevant test. And the fact that he's still wondering 
who's really truly God, Baal or Yahweh. Okay, I tore down an altar in the middle of the night and I got caught. I got really lucky and it worked out well for me and nobody killed me and my dad defended me. But now you're expecting me to go up against an entire army against Baal. I really want to know for sure if you actually can do this. And this is doubt. Now, does Gideon know what he's doing is wrong? Yeah, he does. Because God shows up and actually does it. And the next thing Gideon says is, now, 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 don't be angry with me, but just one more time. This time, make the fleece dry in the ground. Yeah. Now, anytime somebody starts a sentence off with, no, 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 don't be angry with me, you automatically know that they've done something wrong and they know it. But they're immediately going to go into a justification of why you should make them the exception in this case. And that's what Gideon's doing. The first te- look, he's already seen the lightning bolt burn up the animal, and now God has controlled the dew and the rain in the morning, and it's still not enough for Gideon, and he wants to know again if God is actually capable of doing it, so he reverses it. This is not faith. This is not a good test at all. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit's resting upon him. And we all know it's possible to sin under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is not a good man of God. Now, why in the world is God actually responding to these tests? First Timothy, he is faithful to us even when we're not faithful. Here's the thing. There's a difference between a Gideon and a Moses. Moses at the end of his life had walked with God for 40 years. He had seen multiple miracles. He had seen God face to face. He has spent days upon days upon days on the mountain with God. Forty days getting the law. He went up again. He went up again. He went up again. He just had a face to face, not literally, but a really intimate relationship with God. And so when Moses demonstrated a lack of faith and struck the rock twice instead of speaking to it, the consequences were devastating. Because Moses was a mature man of God who knew better and to what he knew and what he was capable of he was held to a high standard and God kicked him out of the promised land but Gideon is a newborn infant in the faith he just met God a couple days ago and here's the thing when my little daughter is first learning what it means to obey me my consequences are not going to be that severe when I tell her not to touch this or not to go there I'm not going to just immediately come in like, you're grounded for the rest of your life and just spank her like crazy. Because she's beginning to learn what it means to actually obey me. She doesn't know who I am, really. I mean, I, for, for right now, she's, I'm the guy who like forces her to sleep when she doesn't want to because I'm the meanie. And I feed her and keep her alive, and I don't drop her on her head when I'm holding her. I mean, that's really all I hand to her right now. And she trusts me in that, but now she's beginning to learn, okay, where are the lines and that kind of stuff. And I'm very gentle and nice with her. So when my daughter looks at, and I tell her not to touch my books, and she looks at me, literally, on her knees, and just looks at me and goes, and touches it, I discipline her, but I'm very easy and very compassionate because she is literally, really trying to figure out, are there really, truly consequences? Who is this guy? And how will he treat me? And how does he, what does he really mean by this? But, If she does that at 18 years old, 
<laughs> After 18 years of being with me and knowing exactly what my expectations are and what the consequences are and knowing very much true morality, and she just blatantly looks at me and says, I dare you to stop me, and does that, the consequences are going to be far more severe. Why does God react differently with Gideon than Moses? Because they're completely different places in their understanding relationship and maturity with God. You see, God's not fair. And you don't want him to be fair. Because fair means everybody is treated exactly the same regardless of their circumstances. And it means that when my little baby daughter screws up, I punish her exactly the same way that an 18-year-old is punished. Fair means that when the person accidentally trips and kills somebody by accident, I punish them exactly the same way that somebody goes out and premeditated slaughters people. That's fair. Fair means that nobody takes your circumstances into account. What we want is justice. Justice is when God looks at you and your circumstances and your motives and says, this is the punishment and this is how I'm going to treat you. And God is not fair, but he's just. And that's why he treats Gideon and Moses differently. Because Gideon is a different place in his faith and knowledge of God than what Moses was. And we need to understand that. And the same thing with you. Because sometimes we need to remember this with our own kids and own people in our life, that we're not meant to be fair. We're meant to be just. Or as my principle says, fair is all of us burning in hell for all eternity. That's fair. But we also need to remember this when we say, but God, why did they get away with this and I didn't? Or why are they getting punished? This I got punished so severely and they didn't. And that jealousy begins to rise in us. Or the how could you? Or why not? And the, because God is just. Because where you are in your walk with God and your faith and your life is completely different than them. And he knows. And some people need the crap smacked out of them and they wake up and they follow God. Some people need an overwhelming amount of compassion poured into them even when they don't deserve it. And that wakes them up and they follow God. Because God is not interested in just treating everybody fairly. God is interested in leading you into a relationship with him. And he will do whatever is necessary to make that happen. And that's either justice or mercy depending on the circumstances. And we need to trust that his ways are good. And when we look at our own people in our lives, we need to ask what will really truly cause them to repent and change and come into an obedient relationship with God. Not what is fair, but what is just. And we need to understand that this is how amazing God is. That he is just. And he looks at Gideon and he sees an infant child that barely knows him. And he walks baby steps with him. And he meets the test. Because he knows this is Gideon needs. Now, the real question is, how is Gideon going to respond to this? A normally healthy child will eventually grow and learn. An unhealthy child or a child who doesn't get it just keeps bucking and bucking and bucking. And the question is, what will Gideon do? He tests God twice, and this is not right. And all throughout this, he's calling him God. 